Hey, good morning, family. Good to see you guys. Let's give our kids another hand, please. Let it go, guys. We love you. Oh, God is good. If you're a guest with us this morning, we want to welcome you here. You're coming in on the back end of a series about the church that we've called Flawed But Beautiful. Flawed But Beautiful. One of the big ideas that we have been hitting over and over throughout uh, this series is that being a Christian is far more than just my individual, personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, Jesus is building a covenant people for himself called the church so that when he saves, he is also gathering. He's gathering people. And so today we're going to look at the role that elders play in shepherding the church that Christ is building. And so uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you want to grab your Bibles and open them, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray. Pray with me. King Jesus, we have come here to express our love for you. We love you. We worship you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, you told us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of my Father. And so we need your word to guide us and to shape us as a church as your people. So would you be pleased to do that? Give us open hearts to hear what you have to say for us because it's always good and it's for your glory. And so we thank you for what you're going to do today and we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, quick review. Last week we discovered that there is uh, both relationship and structure to this people that God is creating called the church. And uh, we saw from the scriptures that part of this structure is, clear, uh, is clearly identifiable members within a local church. And we also saw that within this structure that there's also identifiable leaders within a local church. The Bible calls them elders or sometimes overseers or sometimes pastors. And all those different names and titles, they all refer to the same office of leadership. 
And so we live in a culture today that does not really like leadership and authority. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. We're not too big on leadership and authority. In fact, our country, if you know the history of our country, was actually founded on rebelling against leadership and authority. That's kind of in our DNA as a people. And in fact, in the present age that we live, there's been a dramatic increase of distrust of anyone that's in a leadership position just automatically. Many people today no longer make any kind of nuance or distinction between good leadership and bad leadership. It's all kind of lumped into one category. They believe, you know, the only person that you can trust to lead you in the right way is you. But do you know what breaks the heart of Jesus? Do you know what makes him sad and sympathetic? It's looking out on a mass of people that have no leaders but themselves. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 through 38. I want you guys to see this. Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? It says because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his field. I don't know how you see yourself, how you view yourself this morning, but here is how Jesus views you and me. Like sheep. Let that humble you and encourage you at the same time this morning. That's how Jesus sees you and me. And so to live like sheep without shepherds is to be harassed, to be helpless. It is not a good life. It is not a life we are to be seeking. Jesus looks at our situation. He looks how our heart is formed, that we do not want this And it disturbs him deeply. It says that he has compassion on us, that we would be in this kind of a situation. And he's going to do something about it. He says that he's going to send shepherds into the fields besides the 12 that are standing right there with him. He wants to do something good about this. Paul confirms this when he speaks to the elders of the church in Ephesus. If you go to Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says this, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that word again. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the word overseer refers to an office or a role of authority, of governing a church. Then right after that, we have the word that we translate in English, care for. It literally means to shepherd. So you have the office and then what they do. Right there in the same verse. Of all the terms, of all the pictures, of all the metaphors that that uh, refer and describe elders or leaders of local churches, shepherd is the term that is used most often. Isn't that interesting? And this is very important for us to gain a, a good understanding of what an elder is because most of us, when we think of elders, I don't know what your experience is. I could tell you kind of what mine is. We think of elders, we think of like some like Jedi council or something. You know, they're like secretly wearing robes and using power and force. And, but that's not what's going on. So we need some clarity of this, okay? 
to bring some clarity to what the Bible actually means by elders, we're going to answer two big questions today, okay? Who are they, and what do they do? Who are they? Who are they? So we're going to talk about qualifications, and what do they do? We're going to talk about roles, or their jobs that they do within a church, okay? And before we get started, I want to just say, look, I believe that a lot of healthy things will come to Crossway as we make this move to covenant membership in our church. But one healthy thing that I can tell you has already happened to us as elders and as an elder board is that this whole process of forming covenant membership at our church, this entire process has caused us to reevaluate ourselves as elders. And guess what? That's a healthy thing to do periodically in a church. Amen? And I'll tell you something else that's happened through this entire year-long whatever process it's been. It's has helped us evaluate our examination process of future elders, which is a healthy thing to do for a church periodically. So a lot of good things have already come out of this. So what I want to do is I just want to walk us through these qualifications together. I don't know another way to preach this passage so that we're all seeing the same thing in the same room at the same time. Okay, you guys ready? One person's ready. Thank you, Lila. All right, here we go. <laughs> I'm actually talking to you on Sunday mornings, okay? <laughs> You'll learn. All right. First is this. An elder desires to do the work. They desire the work. This is work. <laughs> Verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a task. It's a job. It is work that we do. So the first qualification is that an elder must want to do the work of shepherding God's people. Being an elder is not sitting in a meeting every couple of weeks, making some decisions, and then just kind of taking off to do your other job or taking off to do other things. That's not what an elder does, although making decisions is a part of that. This is hard work. It takes time out of our weeks. It takes us away from our families. It takes us away uh, from our friends. Even if we have another job to do, and some of the elders have another job they do, and what they're saying is this, I'm going to work my 40 hours, 50 hours a week, and I'm going to also sign up to do extra work during the week. So they got to want to do this work, right? Elders labor in the scriptures with the flock. They form discipleship relationships. They pray for those in need. Listen to people's problems. Correct those that are in the wrong. Help people resolve conflict. This work takes time out of our week, regardless of the other work or jobs or hobbies or commitments that we, we have. And so I want to be real clear about this. I hope you guys are seeing this. Eldering is not a call to power. You don't really have time for that if you're doing this right. It is a call to serve people. It is a call to sacrifice for people. It is a call to lay down your life, lay down your preferences, lay down your schedule, lay down what you like for the good of the flock, the flourishing of the people of God. In a word, eldering is a call to die. It's a call to die to yourself. I'm just going to be honest, that is hard work. It's hard to do that. And that is a lot of work that, let's be honest, most Christians don't want to do. 
a lot of us just want to kind of come in here and this is all set up and people are just disciples are getting made and all, we just we just love consuming that but I don't want to do that work of dying to myself it's hard to do so the first requirement is that somebody actually desires to show up for that kind of work they want to do it they're not being compelled to do it they're not being coerced to do that Secondly, B, they display godly character. This is a long list, so we're just going to go through it verse by verse, phrase by phrase. Verses 2 through 3. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. So this is a person who has character. This doesn't mean that he is sinless. does not mean that he has somehow attained moral perfection before Christ has returned, okay? And aren't you glad for that? If that was the standard, then all your elders would need to resign today. Because we have not reached moral perfection. We are not sinless. We are sinners doing our best. What this means, generally speaking, is that no one would suspect him of wrongdoing. He's shown evidence that he has the character of Christ. If someone said, I know so-and-so did that, we would say, I'm not sure about that. That doesn't sound like him. I need two or three witnesses on that. It's hard for me to believe that. And when he does sin, he's repentant. He's not perfect, but he's repentant. That's the kind of person you want to be an elder of the church. He's the husband of one wife. Uh, Just to lay our cards out on the table, we believe that the scriptures teach that the office is for qualified men. Qualified men. I don't have time to go into depth on that today because we've got a lot to talk about, but let me say that this qualification has nothing to do with competency It has nothing to do with giftedness of women, nor is this some kind of indictment on like women's innate abilities or capabilities to lead. It has nothing to do with that. It's not making a commentary on that. I know, I learn from, and I trust some very qualified women leader, and I plan on continuing doing that. This also does not mean that women cannot teach or lead or speak in the church. They can In fact, they do at our church, except in this one role that God has designed. Paul bases this reasoning for this not on competency, not on what's going on in the culture, but on creation. Creation design is what he rolls us up into. God has designed that men and women work together in complement with one another in different roles to accomplish his work his way. Let's just think about this. Think about some of the men that you know. Could it be possible that they would begin to look a lot more like Christ when they accept their calling to be a noble servant leader in the church and in their homes? I do. Because as you're going to read through these with me, these are quite the qualifications. That'll change a guy. It gives them a standard that they need to live up to and live into. So let's go back to the text. It says the husband of one wife. And so this doesn't necessarily mean that an elder must be married. It's saying that he is a one-woman man. That's literally what that means. He's a one-woman man. He's faithful. So if he is single, and elders can be single, he isn't playing the field with women. He's not promiscuous. If he is married... There is evidence that he keeps his vows to his wife. He's not adulterous. Not literally, not digitally, if you know what I mean. He sacrificially loves his wife. He works to meet her needs. There's not unresolved conflict. 
in their marriage. We all have conflict in our marriages, but there's not just this ongoing, unresolved conflict hanging over the marriage. Her soul is not neglected under his care. And the best way to find this out is you ask his wife. We take time to ask his wife. How's it like living with him? Are you nurtured? Are you flourishing? If this man treats his own bride well and she's flourishing under his servant leadership, then he should be a candidate for leading Christ's bride. Sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable. This means that his hobbies and his side projects do not consume his time. They do not consume his love and affection. They're in their proper place. He loves that appropriate amount. His career does not consume his time or his affections and his love. His appetites do not control his decision-making abilities because he's thinking long-term. He's thinking with some principles, not just how he's feeling with his gut. In other words, there is evidence of maturity to his thinking instead of being irrational or instead of being impulsive. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to go do that. Okay, no, next week, I don't feel that way. Let's go do this over here. He's looking three years down the road, five years down the road. What's the kind of person I want to be, not what's the best deal today and the short-term gain I get from this. That's the kind of guy that you want to have as a shepherd of the church. When he speaks, he speaks in an inviting way that encourages conversation instead of shutting it down. So in other words, he's someone that you could approach with a problem. You could approach with a question or a prayer need that you have. You want someone that's approachable. That's what hospitable means and respectable. Uh, we, we, all, we have all of our elders' names and their emails are printed in the bulletin every single Sunday that we hand out to you. We also have all of our elders, they wear a badge, so they're real visible, even to guests. You can know who they are and where they are. You can see them and come find them. These are just a couple of ways that we try to make ourselves approachable to the church and, and hospitable, okay, practically speaking. Let's go on down to the next line. It says, uh, able to teach. Able to teach. An elder must be able to teach the flock from the scriptures. So this does not necessarily mean that he must teach from the pulpit on Sunday morning, but it does mean that he's able to teach somewhere because teaching is central to the work of an elder. It makes up a big bulk of what, what we're doing. Whether that's a teaching in a life group or children's ministry or men's breakfast, can he open up this book and explain it to people in a way that instructs them in a profitable way in their life? Does he have evidence that he can do that? Can he encourage, correct, refute, guide people from the scriptures in the essential doctrines of the faith? Or is he still trying to figure out what he thinks about inerrancy and authority of scripture and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We need to know that. Notice here that this is the only qualification that's recorded that's a skill. Did you guys notice that? That's real interesting. All the other qualifications are character qualifications. And by the way, they're character qualifications of Christians, not just elders. So chew on that. I don't even have time to go into that. But this is the only skill that's recorded. Elders labor in the word, and they teach often just like Jesus, the great shepherd, did. This is how he fed his flock. It doesn't mean that they need to have a formal seminary degree, but it does mean, and it doesn't mean, by the way, that they need to have a particular teaching style. 
It does mean that they need to show evidence they can verbally explain the scriptures from the flock, not just from their life, but with their mouth. Verse three, it's not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. When you combine this requirement with the one that came before it of self-control, the principle behind this qualification is that an elder leading God's family cannot be addicted to anything. He can't have something else that is mastering him and hamstringing him along the way. Specifically here, it means alcohol. It means drugs, things that would alter his mind, alter his ability to control his body and control his thinking. But this also includes anything that could be addicted. This could be video games. This could be gambling. This could be sports. There's something that he just can't say no to. He's always got to exercise freedom all the time in everything. He can't say no to things. That doesn't mean that, that he can't enjoy a drink, he can't have a beer, he can't have a glass of wine with his dinner. Sure, celebrate, great. Whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God, the Bible says. But it does mean that they have not given themselves over to be mastered by anything except Master Jesus. And they're happy about that. They like that. Let's go on. Next phrase. They're not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. An elder doesn't have to use his fist to get his way. He doesn't physically threaten people. Or verbally intimidate people. Elders don't swagger. Especially in the elder room. They don't swagger. Rather, he is gentle in his approach. You don't want a, you don't want a guy that is physically likes to fight being an elder to get his way. He doesn't enjoy getting into debates with people, whether that's the finer points of theology or finer points of politics. You don't want a guy that's always stirring that stuff up just to get a rise out of people, just to get, I just want to get your opinion, I just want to get your thought. No, you don't. You don't want that guy making the decisions. You don't want that guy shepherding people and praying for people and helping them understand scripture and helping people die. You don't want that guy. He doesn't get pleasure from just stirring stuff up for the sake of stirring stuff up because that's a sign of immaturity. And, And this guy's had that worked out of him by now. He is a peacemaker that seeks to bring calmness to heated situations. That's that's the guy you want at the helm, amen? Now, gentle does not mean that he's spineless, and gentle does not mean that he's a mute who never speaks up or speaks in his situations. He does. It means that he's the kind of man that does not seek out conflict, but he's not afraid to run from conflict either. He will step into that with gentleness and assuredness. So I'm going to speak into this situation because someone's got to. So I'm going to do that. Next phrase, lover of money. We're quiet this morning, aren't we? Lover of money. This doesn't mean that elders can't have money. They don't take a vow of poverty, all right? But it does mean that money doesn't have them. It means that their possessions don't have them. It also means that their wealth doesn't dictate their decisions. Their, their main question is always, isn't always, okay, how much does this cost me? How much does this cost us? What's the bottom line? That's not their first and only question that they ask. It's a question. 
It's a question. The truth is that some guys work really long hours and we think that's because they have a good work ethic. The truth is some guys work long hours because they're actually a slave to their paycheck. They want to have certain things and go certain places and do things and so they're going to work to finance that. But they're working long hours. Not a lover of money means that he shares what he has with other people. He's generous with what he has. Whether he has a lot, great, God bless him. He has a little, God bless him. But he's going to try to share what he can with people. That's what this means. You see, if a man is constantly about making money, saving money, and amassing wealth, why would he suddenly become generous to the poor when he becomes an elder of the church? Like, how does that switch just magically get flipped? If that's really what he's working at and concerned about, how does he suddenly become generous to mission agencies and church planters or even his own church when he becomes an elder? Does he tithe or give to even the people in his own church? He's showing some evidence of generosity. Okay, let's go 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5 now. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's a great question. So we, we talked about this, if you remember last week. The scripture makes big, big parallels, big analogies between the human family and God's family. There's a lot of overlap. They're not identical, but they are analogous. The home is the proving ground for whether a man should become an elder in a local church. That's what it's saying here. When an elder candidate gets examined, we need to talk to his wife. And we need to talk to his children. And see, what is it like living under dad's leadership? What's it like living under your hu husband's leadership? Or you just can't wait to get out of the house? Are you fine? Are you flourishing? Are you wilting? What's going on there? We need to know that because it tells us something about that man. If you walk in, I'll give you an example. You walk in this guy's house, and it's just absolutely in disarray, that's a red flag. There's just chaos everywhere. Chaos is the order of the day. There doesn't seem to be management and order. That's a red flag. Like, if he's constantly got projects that are unfinished in the house and out of the house, and he just can't seem to finish stuff, that's a red flag. If you can't find time to help with the most basic household chores on a regular basis, if he hasn't mowed his yard in a month, he probably should be handed the church keys for leadership. His home is the proving ground for leadership. If you can't finish this stuff at home, how's he going to finish all this stuff? There's a lot of stuff here to do, to take care of. Do you see how this makes sense, guys? So maybe he looks good. Maybe he looks like a smart dresser. He's got a great haircut. He looks like he's got some things in order. But what if he's, got, he's financially upside down in debt for whatever reason? Should he really be the one balancing the, the church's checkbook? Is that just going to magically change overnight? Probably not. Probably need to have a conversation and figure out what's going on there. Does he seem to train and discipline his children when they disobey him? Or is the family culture just kind of like, ah, kids will be kids. Yeah, they'll self-parent. We'll just kind of let them figure that out. What's the culture in the home? If he cannot raise his children in the ways of the Lord, why should he be trying to do that with God's children? That's the reasoning that Paul is using here. 
And I want to be clear, this does not mean that his children sit quietly in the corner reading the Bible eight, eight hours a day and they never <laughs> sin, okay? Children need parents, so it, they need to be parent, all right? We know that. We get that. It doesn't mean that all of his old, adult children that have left the home are now attending a local church. It simply means that, there's in, that he has intentionally and sacrificially put some thought into discipling his children and passing on his precious faith to the God that he loves, to his children that he loves. It also means that there's evidence that there is order and management in the house at some level. The household is the proving ground for church leadership. Let's go into verse six and seven. I gotta watch my time. Uh, He must not be a recent convert or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that is, non-believers, by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Man, the devil got mentioned twice (laughs) in these two verses. So we should pay attention. Elders are characteristically humble men. That's what this is saying. Generally speaking, characteristically speaking, they're humble brothers. They've lived long enough to know what their weaknesses are and what their thorns in the flesh are that they possess. They got a good handle on that. They don't have pie, they don't have pie in the sky swaggering. I'm all positives, no negatives. Good elders depend on the Holy Spirit because God has made them keenly aware that they have been called to do a job that is too big for their abilities alone. They know they need God, and God's helped them know that. They walk with a limp. So be very careful of installing a man that has only experienced spiritual successes and ministry successes, or only knows what his talents are, what his gifts are, and what he brings to the table. He's not aware of some of the liabilities that he also possesses or what he cannot do. This elder knows, I can do these things, and these are my limitations, and I'm honest about that. Because if a guy can't do that, he's just not lived long enough in the faith. He's not ready. There's still some immaturity that needs to be worked out. And we need to know how to wash that guy out. He needs to be washed out of the process. If this guy cannot articulate what sins he knows that he's vulnerable to or he's unwilling to even openly talk about that, he knows but he doesn't really want to talk about that, then he doesn't need to be a leader in God's church. That is not good for the other people because that's how the other people in the church are thinking. He's got to lead them. Talk about these things. Come into the light. It's good for us. A relatively young or immature believer, and those can come in all ages, by the way, A relatively young, immature believer can go and make great strides and great progress in the faith and be enthusiastic about ministry. He's got great ideas. He's he's got great plans. Let's do this. Let's start these things up. Let's go. But but, but that will open him up to pride. If he doesn't have a good handle on who he is, they need some time to be tested. Can they finish what they start? Can they submit to a process that takes time? Can they submit to other people? They need to learn how to be under someone before they are over someone. Does that make sense? 
Additionally, it says here that unbelievers need to be able to sign off on his character. If we were to talk to this, uh, to the guys that he works at with, his coworkers, if we were to send them like an application for eldership to the unbelievers at his job and said he wants to be an elder, tell us about his character, he should be able to sign off on this guy's character. That unbeliever should, be, should say this, I think he's an absolute nutcase because he believes Jesus rose from the dead. I'll never go to his church because he's a weirdo. But you know what? He shows up every day on time for work. And when he shows up for his job, he shows up for work. He doesn't steal. He doesn't lie. He keeps his word. He honors his wife while he's on the job. He doesn't badmouth the boss when the rest of us does. I'm not surprised he wants to be a leader in your church. That makes sense to me. That's what they should write back in some form or fashion. Does this make sense? Crossway will be looking for new elders soon. And we're gonna talk more about that after the service. But we want you to see the kind of man that our church needs so that you can be praying with us about this. So, so we've been talking about who they are. Now, what do they do? What do elders do? Well, I've been kind of talking about this all along, but I'll, I'll briefly list the roles here this morning. A, elders feed the flock. Elders feed the flock. Mark 6, 34. And when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had great compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So he's going to shepherd them. How is Jesus going to shepherd? By teaching them many things. Just as the great shepherd fed the people by teaching them his word, we saw in 1 Timothy 3 that elders feed God's people by teaching them God's word. It's a big bulk of what they do. Let's go James 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Elders pray in the name of the Lord for people that are sick as well. They nurture, they feed the flock by praying for people. If you go to Acts 6, we don't have time to go through that whole passage, but that, they says, look, this is the big part of what elders do, the word and prayer. This is what we're devoting our time to and setting aside our time to. Let's go to Colossians 1, 28 through 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, we're gonna come back to wisdom in a minute, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, it's work, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The goal of us serving up God's word is that our people would spiritually grow up into maturity. We don't want you being the same way five years from now that you are today. We don't want that for us. We don't want that for you. We want to see us changing, growing, moving. Maturity. We teach and pray for you in the hopes that you'll become mature enough to turn around and mature others and make other disciples. We're not the only ones doing that. This is a shared part of the church. B, the elders also lead the flock. Let's go 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 to 18. It says, let the elders who, who rule well the elders who rule well, so let's talk about governance, 
be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. God has given elders authority to govern his church that he has bought with his blood. They are to give direction to the church, manage the resources, give oversight to the various ministries that are going on within the church. Elders are to develop other ministry leaders who will help with the work. That's one of the main things we do. We want other people to help with the work of making disciples of Jesus Christ. They also develop future elders. This is a healthy, sustainable church here, right? And it says here that the members should honor them. That's the relationship that's laid out in Scripture. Additionally, we would say that much of this leading takes place in the gray, A lot of the leading that elders do happens in the gray areas where there's not a specific scripture to instruct us. There's not a chapter verse for everything, for every decision that has to be made in church. Did you know that, by the way? You should know that. There's not chapter verse for every decision that can be made in a church. A bulk of it requires this biblical category called wisdom. God allows elders to use wisdom in leading depending on the situation at hand. And I happen to have a chapter and verse that kind of illustrates what I'm talking about here. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, And we urge you, brothers, now check out these various situations with me. You ready? Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Did you see all the different situations in a church? Well, they got to lead into those situations. But how? How do you admonish the idol? Doesn't say, does it? Got to use some wisdom. Different idol people might need to be addressed in a different way, right? Not a one-size-fits-all. How do you encourage the faint-hearted? Doesn't say. How do you encourage? Doesn't say. Just gives this principle. Be patient with them all. Use your best judgment. Use your best judgment. Use wisdom. Elders lead by applying and appropriating wisdom in a variety of situations. See, elders guard the flock. Let's go to Acts 20, verse 28 through 30. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He gives two different categories of people here. Be on your guard for them. He tells that to the elders, right? Like good shepherds, guard the door to the sheep pen. The elders guard the door to the church. We want to know who's a part of this church. What are the influences that are coming in and out in our groups? Not just on Sunday morning. What are people reading? What are people listening to? We just kind of want to have an idea of what that is. We are called by God in our role to kick out the dogs, which are false brothers. They say they're brothers, but they're not. And we're to shoot the wolves. And that's false teachers. 
He says, be harsh with them. Don't be gentle with them. They're wolves. This is why we want to know who are the members of our church. It helps us do our job that God has given us to do so that we are not negligent shepherds of the flock. This is why we, wanted to, why we developed last year a discipleship pathway and curriculum that we reviewed and we approved so we know that this is actually taking people where we want them to go. It's a good place. We actually took the time to review all of that stuff. It's not trying to be in control. It is trying to do our job of guarding the flock. This is why we concern ourselves with who is leading, who is teaching, and who is influencing the, our members. It's how we guard the flock as good shepherds and do our job. It's love. It's love. Here's what I want to do. I want you guys to, to get involved. I want you guys to participate in this part. All right? Sermon's over. I want you to end by guiding us through some time of prayer for our elders. I'm going to guide us through some time of prayer. So if you would close your eyes, bow your head, and we're just going to pray, and I'm going to Every few seconds, I'm just going to just guide us. Let's pray for this now. Let's pray for this. We're going to pray for our elders. Would, you, would we pray together about this? And let's just start by praying for strength for our elders. You can pray for them by name. This takes energy, and it takes resolve. Pray for strength, that God would give it to our elders. And now let's ask God to give wisdom for the decisions that need to be made. We need God's wisdom. And now let's pray, pray that God would protect them from the enemy. God would protect their children, their family from attacks. From Satan. I just pray that God would give them insight from the scriptures. Scriptures would be fresh to them. Their own personal relation with Jesus would be renewed and refreshed as we lead out of that relationship. Ask God to give them just patience. And now pray that God would help us develop new elders at Crossway. Pray for his development and pray for the guidance and that, the wisdom. Great Shepherd Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your word. Frankly, Lord, this has been a very humbling message for me. 
We thank you for the grace that you supply. We pray that you would take care of our church. We take, pray that you would take care of our people, our members. That you would continue to guide us after you. That we, we would follow you, Jesus, as the Lord and the head of our church. We worship you and we thank you for all that you have been doing to bring us to the point. This point, we thank you for all that you will do. We're so excited about it. We love you, great shepherd. We trust you. Amen.